G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in the Melbourne studios of 3CR, on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This is the last program in our series looking at future work. Last week we looked at workers' cooperatives, where not only do people control their work, but create their work. Now we are going to look at what the big end of town mean when they talk about the fourth industrial revolution, smart cities and a whole new landscape for work because of the application of AI, artificial intelligence. This is a general overview of the world they see. It is from a speech by Jeff Connolly, CEO of Simmons Australia, who was named as adjunct professor at Swinburne University in April in 2019. The speech was given last year at an event given by CEDA, Committee for Economic Development of Australia, an organisation financed by business and government sponsors, including Simmons. That's a depiction of the four industrial revolutions that have been described. The fourth one being the cyber-physical systems age that we are approaching. So the... uh, the, in, the fourth industrial revolution is born out of the need to be competitive and the need to be productive, but it's enabled by technologies of digitalisation and the ability to handle data, co- sorry, collect data, um, interpret it and do something with it. Put very simply, that's, that's the um, genesis of what Industry 4.0 is all about. Now, I've said before at different forums that... Uh, uh, we're describing an industrial revolution prospectively. And typically, after an industrial revolution has happened, people sit back and say, well, if only we'd known, we could have got prepared and we could have actually had much, much less social consequence of that, of that industrial revolution in terms of jobs. So this time, it's very clear uh, that there's going to be a massive transition happening in the way we get things done, uh, but also what it means for the, for the future of work. So the, um, if I put it um, in simple terms, because of the explosion of data and remembering Industry 4.0 was something conceived from a manufacturing environment, we had uh, up until around the mid-2000s lots of product data management activity in the manufacturing side. What's happened uh, in a similar period of time is that uh, automation systems were put into manufacturing processes so gradually, as, as you moved along, we, we were able to do in the product side rapid prototyping through the design in the virtual world, means on, on systems before you put a physical product in place. Um, and in the factories, you were able to actually model what, what was going to be produced before you even turned uh, the first sod for the, for the um, factory. And, of course, what's happened post that is the ability through the operation, through the life of whatever the product is or the production plant, you're able to continue to optimise. So closing that loop. All, all enabled by data. If you want some um, practical, what are the consequences there? So uh, these are uh, examples of Firewire sur- uh, Surfboards. is a Western Australian company owned by Kelly Slater, who knows a thing or two about surfing, apparently. Uh, he bought a company there, but it's about uh, 
a customised mass production. So can you produce an individual surfboard, one off, at the same cost as you would do if you're making 500 or 600 or 700 of the same design? Using the digital tools in the design, that changes business models and the way people then will go and order a surfboard. Uh, and how it pops out, gets produced and gets delivered. Second example there is Callaway Golf. A lot of Industry 4.0 is talking about reducing cycle times. How long does it take me from the, the time I have an idea that I want to modify a product to getting it to the market? And your ability to actually do the design and simulate all the consequences of the design happening at the front end through all of those software tools that, that got developed. Product cycle in terms of months rather than years. Um, in the early stages, uh, Formula One racing, uh, when Red Bull was dominating, their dominance actually was to do with the, with the way that they could actually modify what was happening um, between races and then actually um, uh, be faster than the competitors to make adjustments. The third one that's is shown as an example there is actually Julux, a well-known icon in Australia. And from a manufacturing point of view, is it possible to continuously reduce the lot sizes so that you can have a small batch at the same cost as a large batch? Gives you much more flexibility in your manufacturing processes uh, and removes a lot of manual steps if you can automate it properly. So if I show you a bit of a timeline here. Now, I mentioned that there was the early stages, 2000 product data management. That's the left-hand side of that graph. You see we, we continue to be able to design the product on the left. Uh, and on the right-hand side, there's any, a continuing automation in manufacturing. The inflection point there is something called product lifecycle management software, where there's all of the ability to do the engineering on a suite of software tools that enables you, A, to model it, but B, to simulate it before you go and produce it. So from the imperative of productivity, of course, you're reducing the room for error. So it's a quality-driven, uh, non-conformance cost elimination type of philosophy in there, accelerated, accelerated through the ability to shift data around. Now, you move further on, uh, integrating the automation in the production and the design of the product, and you can evolve, evolve that whole process continuously. Uh, interesting there, uh, there's a comment at the top of the page, uh, was uh, in, a, in a publication re recently from Andrew Detmar, who's the president of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, and he was sort of lamenting the general productivity of manufacturing. Now, he said that, I guess, on safe grounds, because he actually knows in terms of factor productivity, the labour productivity in Australia hasn't been the laggard in terms of overall productivity. It has to do with what we've invested in the capital side, what we've done in technologies uh, to facilitate uh, further, further productivity overall. So I'll, I'll get back to that, uh, a, a thought uh, on that in, in a moment. So that's, that's the evolution. Uh, what happened in Australia under Industry 4.0, we said, we'll mirror what the, the German approach. And, and here I'd like to say the, the Industry 4.0 approach and what's different about it is because it's seen, we're seeing something prospectively, but we're seeing it holistically. What we're saying there is um, this is not just a technology play. The technologies that will come in and out of what we describe as cyber-physical systems, they will go to uh, autonomous systems, there'll be machine learning. All of those technologies will develop under one particular uh, part of what we research in the products. But the framework that enables all of that, that has to, when I mentioned a moment ago, getting ready for the future, has to do, do, we ha has to do with do we have the standards? 
reference architecture standards and norms globally. Because unless we actually have, this, have the data exchanges happening seamlessly across the globe, then, of course, uh, th this digitalisation effect can't happen. So that's the first one in Australia. Standards Australia is running the workstream uh, standards for Industry 4.0. The uh, IMCRC is actually looking for new technologies to be playing in that field. The third one is a little understated, and I've mentioned it several times uh, the, um, as being understated, uh, is, a, is, a, is the network security, cyber security. That if this world of digitalization is going to flourish, then we need to have trust in the integrity of the data moving in and out, and it can't be uh, manipulated by those people who would want to manipulate it. If you extend that just briefly f into infrastructure, uh, if you can imagine that most of the power electronics on networks, for example, were laid out at a time where people really weren't considering that they might be hacked. And they weren't considering that they might be an entry point for uh, a force that wanted to bring a system down. And if you consider that uh, what happens if, in a, in a synchronised way, all the devices on the network are brought down at the same time cross modes, power, water, rail, airport, boom. So you can see that the, the network security topic becomes something of an economic uh, imperative because you can actually bring down an economy of a country if that's not looked after. And all of this digitalisation and these extra devices out there on the field mean that we have an exponential risk that we have to, we have to be able to manage. The, the fourth uh, pillar of what's been implemented in Australia is co-led by Swinburne University, who were originally part of the Prime Minister's Task Force and the Australian Manufacturing Workers' Union. There's something a little unique uh, in the way the Germans go about organising the future. They'll take a big topic and cut it down in its little parts, but it's a collective. It's not a single industry company that's saying... Uh, we own Industry 4.0. Siemens, of course, contributes many technologies that are enabling it, but it's not about Siemens technologies at all. It's about the societal framework, and this particular framework that I'm showing you here is the same one we're trying to adopt for the implement or getting ready for Industry 4.0 in Australia. That work stream, the, the final one, work, education and training, uh, and test labs is the mechanism by which we provide skills in enough quantity uh, to change um, existing workforces but ready future workforces for the jobs they're going to need to be doing in that environment. And we have by far not enough people in quantity to, to do the transition and to, and to do the add-on. I'll say a little bit more about that in the future. So uh, end statement about Industry 4.0, it's not just about a technology. It, it's at a, a core, but the overall program Industry 4.0, the way it's being conceived by the Germans and the way we're implementing it in Australia, is about an holistic framework. Of all those things, you've got to get right so you don't displace workers and leave them behind, primarily. And make sure that we go along with the rest of the world and make sure we don't get left behind because we can't compete. You're listening to Stick Together, Workers' Stories, Union News and Social Justice Issues. We are listening to a speech given by Jeff Connolly, CEO of Simmons Australia, about smart cities and what the big end of town believes it is doing to change everything, including your work and living environment. So let's get to infrastructure and what, what then could be the overlay for infrastructure. Well, uh, for the sake of convenience, we put one, two, three, four in the stages of infrastructure there. Any of you say utopia? is somewhere up at four, where you say you have fully integrated intelligent infrastructure, 
uh, integrated real-time optimization and incident management across all infrastructure domains, not just energy, not just water, not within the building, all domains, transport included. So how do you, how do you manage a city or, or your infrastructure in a way that you can incident respond? If anybody is working on uh, uh, the new Sydney airport, you'll know that the board there is actually talking about how do we have exactly that um, environment in a new build. Much more difficult when you're talking about an entire city. How do you transition it from where it is now to where it needs to be in the future? But that's ultimately where this is going and it will be enabled by the similar characteristics I was just talking about in digitalisation in, inside the factory walls. If you ask me where are we at the moment, um, I would say within the silos of the modes of infrastructure, we're making some progress in automation. But I wouldn't say that we're probably at three. I would say we're somewhere between two and three on, on that journey because they're very much seen as discrete, still seen as discrete silos. If anybody's got a different opinion about that, um, and some are quite advanced within their silos. I'm not uh, suggesting for a minute that there's not advances in technology other than that the journey's a little longer. Uh, I was asked to put a little example there. This is actually Milan, and it, it's not at all an example of the fourth stage. It's actually just an example where it's cross-modal, a water organisation, and perhaps Southwest Water will say some more about that, what technology is there uh, implementing, because I know we've had some um, interface with them over many years in the history. They were rather advanced in the way they approached the introduction of technologies. But this is a Milan case where it's... it's um, trying to optimise real-time according to um, demand, the water flows, the pumps, the energy, the energy to have an holistic real-time response to what's going on actually on the network with no lag. Uh, we would say that's quite advanced, but again, um, only within a limited silo. So how much, how much of the success uh, of the manufacturing industry is based on what issues? Well, manufacturing inside of four walls, you can digitalise. We find it much harder in a, in a construction environment out in the city. How do you digitalise the city? And, but the philosophies that we have inside the manufacturing environment can still be applied. I try to... Nice graphic. Um, that graph is actually a German graph, so anybody want to defend the construction industry in Australia, that's quite OK, because this is really talking about the German experience. Um, we don't take anybody down in the room and see it, do we, Michael? We just say it. Right? This is a this is an interesting publication. It talks about uh, manufacturing productivity. How uh, in Germany the manufacturing productivity rose and rose and rose and rose. That the same number of workers were producing manyfold more output in terms of manufacturing product. And it's described there, okay, it's productivity per employee. But you can see what's happening there is the application of automation to enable the same number of employees to be working by just simply producing more. Over the same period of time, the construction industry hasn't enjoyed the same sorts of productivity games in, in Germany, in this case. And you might um, ask the question, why? Labour productivity is not bad in Germany, but it's a similar answer. It's, it's the way the pick-up rates on creating such things as, as digital twins. Um, the realities in the construction industry, uh, for those that are more deeply involved in all elements of it than we are as technology suppliers, but typically 
30% of the projects don't meet their original program times or budgets. 92% of planners say that they never have all the information before they really commence. EPC typically means engineer, procure and construct, not somehow procuring before you've done the engineering, but happens, I would say, relatively frequently. 37% of, of, of materials used in construction is wasted. It's this accuracy of, of build, uh, 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 bill of materials, for example. And 10% of projects typically um, occur for adjustments done after you've thought what it is you'd like to build and what during the construction you think, oh, that's what I need to build. So variation orders. On the right-hand side, a slightly different theme, but we really uh, need to understand, say, buildings, for example, generate 38% of CO2. It's not only about cars. So how do you, how do you in the build of and the design of a building, make sure that you're future-proofing for those sort of society requirements that are coming through and need to come through in terms of carbon management? Um, we were in uh, Zurich last week at our building technologies group and the, the, one of the fellows put that diagram up there and he said, Jeff, you know what? You talk about digital ships for Navy. How do we create a digital twin? How do we manage the ship right through its life cycle, making sure that we optimise for the nation the whole spend? And, and he said, a building's a ship. And I said, OK, it doesn't move too much, but hopefully. But uh, if you look at the, the, the um, activities that are going on inside a building, you can get yourself there fairly easily. If you look at the build part, is 20% of the cost, the life cycle cost of that building. How you operate, what's happening during the operational period is 80% of the cost. And if you're building into efficiencies, all those elements that are uh, described in the, in the circle there, if you're already building into the build portion the anticipation of needing to optimise the 80% of the costs, then you'll start to move the dial in terms of where we need to be going in infrastructure. How is it that I uh, get through um, building information systems that my building is performing the way I expected it to perform when I designed it? How, how, how do you get enough data back to check your original uh, uh, thoughts when that, when that building was uh, engineered? I'm trying to get through these slides. So, so I've mentioned just CO2, but of course we talk about quality of life in this whole discussion, you know, uh, building better places, better cities for us to live in. That's the function of a city, is actually to support the, the people that are living and working through that city. So there are all those elements that need to be designed into whatever it is you're doing in the infrastructure. Oops, go back. Oops, sorry. Uh, there are some metrics there, I, I won't dwell on them, that describing the sorts of gains that can be had uh, by by applying technologies, um, what is it that makes it? What makes the trains run late? Typically, the trains run late because the doors don't open and people can't get on and off. Believe it or not, that's statistically the main reason. It's not about the technology sitting under the train, the propulsion system. It's those issues. So, how can you predict what's going to happen? How do you know that that particular door, that particular mechanical part, is going to fail next week, on the basis of a big enough data pool? and certain characteristics that you're reading, there's a vibration, uh, there's a shutter when the door opens and you can do the predicted maintenance remotely uh, and take it off before it slows down the system. 
uh, traffic management. There's some ITS people in the room who have, have lots of experience of that. Uh, train automation, driverless trains, all those sorts of topics will come. The, the example we have on, on the right-hand side is um, uh, business models changing. We don't sell a train anymore, we sell availability of a train. The commodity is actually not the main topic and, and that's the sort of dialogue we need to be um, entering into. Victoria, as you would know, has, has recently issued a digital asset strategy um, focusing on the sorts of challenges that we've got in the state moving forward. Um, moving up to 8 million people in Melbourne. Um, I just made it here. I was parked on Yarra Boulevard in the third lane trying to get across onto Batman Avenue exit, but it, there was no movement there. And we talk about the uh, uh, daily, the commute times. All of us experienced it. It took me two hours to get from the city out on a trip that normally take me 45 minutes yesterday. For some reason, everybody must have been leaving the city at the same time. Uh, 10 million trips a day, an increase of 80%. Uh, up till 2050, 40% uh, electricity will come from renewals. Adds complexity into how you manage that system. How you're going to holistically manage what's going on there. Our own, our own target, zero, zero net emissions by 2050. Means all those building consumption technologies in terms of uh, electricity have to be modified. 1.6 million new homes... And ideally, 20 minutes commute. I'm quite happy about that if it occurs. So there's some examples here of other places in the world. Uh, the Chinese, uh, as you might know, have many mega cities, and uh, they can. At least the Chinese are able to organise in a way um, because they have a central government that plans these things systematically and can implement them. The dialogue is not as uh, long as it is for the rest of us. Uh, I'm not, I, having lived in China for seven years, I, I see a lot of beauty in the ability to get things done. I wouldn't say that we necessarily would import all of the systems of, of China, but notwithstanding the, the, the planning of what needs to come in the medium term, the Chinese are, are running with that, and that the terminology is emerging. Well, we used to talk about the Internet of Things. Is the Internet of Things was everything. Many of my competitors have the internet, but they have no things. We would say we do both because we know the domains that we're, we're trying to automate or we're, we're trying to uh, participate in. The terminology is shifting. The internet's actually a given now. That's, that's actually the pipe that carries the data. We're now talking about the artificial intelligence of things. And again, that links back into that fourth stage of infrastructure that I was just mentioning to you, uh, number four, saying how do you get cross-modal real-time adjustment, and it's not relying on human intervention, it's happening in the background. And, and that, that sort of work, I, I know the Chinese are quite advanced in that. Whoops, sorry. Sorry, this one. Helsinki and their 3D, uh, 3D project are actually undertaking to produce a digital twin of the city. So from all the domains sucking up into a platform, an IoT secure platform... Uh, the ability to interrogate data in a consistent way, write apps on it depending which part of the system they're trying to, to modify and, and improve. So I'll close off now by saying there's a consequence in all of this that's actually mirrored in Industry 4.0. 
This is the World Economic Forum. came out last year and said by 2022, artificial intelligence robots could uh, displace 75 million jobs worldwide. Sounds like the bad news. The good news... Oops. The good news is there will be 133 million new jobs created. So it's not doom and gloom. However, there's a heck of a lot of work to be done to do the transition. In Australia, um, the dialogue, and certainly in Industry 4.0, and I think it's in smart infrastructure just the same, there's a competing a, a competition for all of those sorts of new resources. And uh, our educational institutions are simply not capable or uh, armed with enough capability to produce the quantity of new jobs that we need. If you think about all the defence projects, the second wave of resource, boom. The infrastructure topics we're talking about here then you'll get to, if you stop to aggregate it, where are all these, where are all these skills going to come from? And uh, most of the uh, members of the Australian Industry Group are saying, I can't get the skills. There's people available, but not with the skills. So a lot of the work that needs to be done at the moment, despite the fact that the universities are producing more graduates than ever, how do we get then micro-credentialing back into the curriculum of a broader base of educational institutions to, to uh, lift up this gap that we can see coming? So that, in summary, was the journey, Industry 4.0 and Smart Infrastructure. Thank you. That's it for Stick Together this week. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne. Stick Together is made possible through the financial support of the Community Radio Foundation and we come to you on the Community Radio Network through your local community radio station. The podcast is available at 3cr.org.au and on iTunes and you can contact the producers of the show at sticktogether3cr at gmail.com or by calling 03 My name's Annie McLaughlin. Remember, wherever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. And until next time, stick together. Stick together.